Okay, <clears throat> so we've looked at a few different ways of telling the story, a few different themes for the story. Now I want to consider number four, the story of romance and marriage. The story of romance and marriage. If you were to start that out, where would you start? Yeah, Genesis, the garden, right? It's where all of our biblical theological themes begin, the garden. Where God creates the world and says it's very good, but it's not good for man to be alone. The very first thing that God says is not good is that the man is alone. So he forms the woman from man. Doesn't form the woman from the dust of the ground, but forms the woman from man. And look at what it says in Genesis 20, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. And what did God do? What did God do with the woman? He brought her to the man. Right, that, I mean, that's a, it's, a, it's almost something that you can look over if you read too quickly, but <clears throat> God is the one who took the man and the woman and made sure they were together. <clears throat> it, it's almost this picture of him leading her by the hand to bring her to her husband. He brought her to the man. And you know what the first words spoken by the man in the Bible are, right? It's in Genesis 2.23, the very first words that we have the man speak. This is poetry, right? This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He sees her and erupts in poetry. How beautiful is that, right? He sees the woman, erupts in poetry. He sings a song about her. Or he writes a poem about her. It's the first thing he says. <clears throat> Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and the woman together <clears throat> uniquely show God's intent for creation because the not good situation is now undone. Right? <clears throat> And in one sense, I think, even though the narrative doesn't say this, I think we can say that, by implication, the creation was not good until the man and the woman came together. They were not good, then God brought them together to fix that not good situation. And this expression in the woman together in marriage, it's both, I think, the becoming one flesh it's, it's metaphorical, of course. They're one unit. They operate as a single person, not as two individual persons anymore, but it's literal as well, right? And that's followed by the next verse. They were naked and not ashamed. <clears throat> the closest of companionships to where complete emotional and physical intimacy is possible without fear, without shame. That's the blessing of <clears throat> relationship and marriage apart from sin. In this one flesh union, it's, <clears throat> it's significant because 
where was the woman taken from? The woman was taken out of man. And in the one flesh union, there's a return, right? A return to how things were. In marriage, both man and woman are united together again. And they're fully vulnerable and they have nothing to hide. And that's why sin is so devastating. Because as the woman <clears throat> rules over the man, <clears throat> they hide themselves and they clothe themselves. <clears throat> They're no longer naked and unashamed. They're now hiding and covering themselves with fig leaves. <clears throat> and sin affects the marriage relationship so that in verse 16... To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. <clears throat> shall be contrary to your husband. And he shall rule over you. Did Ben talk about that verse at all in your Torah class? <clears throat> it, it, for the woman, the desire is headship in the home to rebel against his leadership. And for the man, it's a temptation to rule harshly, is how we can translate the word. <clears throat> that he will not just lead the home, but he, she will be especially tempted to usurp his authority, and he will be especially tempted to rule in a way that's cruel and mean. <clears throat> and and uh, I think it's clear in uh, chapter 4, verse 7, when the same word is used, <clears throat> This is what God says to Cain. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you don't do well, sin is crouching the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Right? So sin desires to rule over Cain, but you must rule over it. And then we get to the end of chapter 4, and we have the first account now of polygamy. So if if Adam's song was, she is bone of my bone, and she is flesh of my flesh, Lamech's song is, I have two wives. You see how the song in Genesis 2 and the song in Genesis 4 foil each other? It takes this beautiful picture of marriage, and it shows what it looks like for men to dominate women in marriage, men to use marriage as their own, to their own selfish ends, men to think of women as a commodity to be gained, as an expression of their own masculinity. Look at what I've done. I have two wives, right? And consider also Genesis 12 with Abraham, right? When Abraham goes, or Abram goes down into Egypt, he's worried for himself, isn't he? They're going to kill me. They might murder me because my wife is beautiful. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to ask my wife to lie to rescue me. The cowardliness. He puts her life at risk to save his own. He, he puts, what he puts at risk is that his wife would forever become the wife of Pharaoh in a foreign country, and he'll never see her again. And she'll be stuck there forever so that he, he doesn't have to worry about getting killed. 
Again, the selfishness and the dominance of men over women and using the women for their own selfish ends. Not protecting, not guarding, not keeping as was Adam's duty in the garden, but instead an expression of masculinity or cowardliness. Consider also Genesis 27. Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to hunt and bring, hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me the game and prepare the delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice that I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats. I may prepare them delicious food. And you shall bring it to your father and eat so that he may bless you before he dies. <clears throat> Do you, do you see within this theme of marriage what's happening here? You have a wife. Not only do you have men ruling harshly over their wives, but here you have a wife conniving and scheming against her husband. She has one child she wants to receive the blessing, and he has another child, and she wants her way to be done, and so she's going to deceive her husband. And using her children to get her own way. Consider also Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of a home, or if the latter man dies who took her to be your wife, then her former husband who sent away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For this is an abomination to the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. See how complicated this got so quickly? And when Jesus reads this text, he doesn't read it to say Moses was fine with divorce. He reads it to say Moses was putting up with the fallen condition and was trying to help people understand what to do within broken relationships. You see if God's ideal of this one man and one woman has quickly eroded so that we even have to talk about within God's covenant people what happens if she gets a divorce and then she marries again and then second divorce, then what happens to the first husband after that? This is what sin, how sin wreaks havoc in God's world. Compare that to Malachi 2, 13 through 14. <clears throat> Sorry, 13 through 16. The man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in spirit and do not be faithless. This idea of the, the one flesh union being torn apart through selfishness, through unfaithfulness, through, by the time of Jesus, the seen indecency in your wife from Deuteronomy 24, that was taken to mean if she burns my food. Let me divorce her. Moses allows for that. 
What's going on by the time Jesus came around? Even, even within laws given to explain what, to happen in, what should happen in difficult marital relationships, see how sin takes opportunity of the law to create more sin, to create more excuses, when God's ideal is, ideal is fidelity. And this, this picture of marriage um, is used then of Israel, Right? Uh, Israel becomes, our unfaithfulness to covenant becomes a picture of adultery within marriage. So Hosea 1 is a great example. Let's just walk through Hosea 1 real quick. Are you guys familiar with the story of Hosea? It's one of the most interesting of all the prophets. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. That's a dirty word, right? In English. The Bible, the Bible, I mean, the Bible uses that word because it wants to strike you. It wants to hit you hard. The land has committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of uh, Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now this is significant. Do you see what it says? She conceived and bore him a son. Keep that in mind. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for just in a little while I will punish the house of Judah, Jehu, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom and the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Okay. She conceived again and bore a daughter. What's missing? Doesn't say she bore him a daughter. It says she bore a daughter. In a story that's expecting this to be an unfaithful woman, I think it's a hint of the uncertainty of who is the father of this child. We don't know, right? We don't know, but Hosea also doesn't know, right? And I think the, the ambiguity is intentional because you're supposed to feel what Hosea felt. You know that God says that she's um, an unfaithful woman, and now you're not fully convinced you're the dad of this next child. And then look in verse 8, and when she had weaned no mercy, which is the name of the child, she conceived and bore a son. Second time. It does not say she bore him a son. So then, um, there's this call. She, she clearly goes away from, from her husband once we get to chapter 2. There's something that happens between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and my guess is it's been kind of slowly happening all along, based on the hints we've had. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead, this is, this is Hosea, but it's really, it's, it's the faithful Israel pleading with all of Israel also, right, because it's an allegory. Plead with your mother, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and, and kill her with thirst. That's a description of the exile, right? But look at where it ends up going. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, I will woo her, verse 14. I will bring her into the wilderness. Where's the wilderness in Israel's history? 
It's outside the promised land, right? It's a place of testing. And here, here, the image becomes the place of romance. This is an image in Song of Solomon, too, actually. The place where Yahweh wooed Israel and brought her to himself. He's going to take her to that same place again. And I will speak tenderly to her. That's the restoration of the people of God, as it's described. And then in chapter 3, God wants to impress this further with another picture. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver. And a homer and a, and a lithic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, and so will I be to you. Don't be unfaithful. Don't do it. Stay with me, and I also will not be unfaithful to you. So will I be to you. I will be faithful to you. So the story of marriage is it's a bigger story than just there's more at stake. Right? I mean, God's honor in the union of a man and woman is at stake, certainly, but there's cosmic realities going on in marriage. This is not a, a small relationship between a man and a woman. This is a picture of God and his people. And James picks up this language also in James 4, right? You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He calls the church, the worldly church, adulterers and adulteresses as well. Probably picking up on the themes from Hosea, picking up on the themes from Ezekiel 16 as well. <clears throat> so we have, this, we have a pretty bleak backdrop, right? Things are not looking good. Uh, things are just declining and declining and declining with these marriages, these relationships, and, and Israel's unfaithfulness plays a part in the story. And against this backdrop stands the Song of Solomon which opens up with one of the most remarkable cries. <clears throat> so for the Song of Songs is what it's called. It's like the Holy of Holies, the King of Kings. It means like the, the, the greatest of all songs, basically. We're not going to go through this in detail. We're just going to survey it. You'll go through this in your poetry class. But let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. This is a beautiful cry for intimacy between a man and a woman that was lost because of sin and longs to be seen again. She even describes him, look at this, in verse 5, when she describes herself, I am, I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Do not gaze on me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. Right, she's, she probably works out in the field a lot. She doesn't, she doesn't like the way she looks. But he, verse 9, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. He sees her and he sees nothing but a lovely woman. Isn't that true of marriages, right? Don't look at me. I'm, I'm not beautiful. Oh, yes, you are. And uh, 
that's necessary, essential in, in a good marriage, is that the man affirms his wife's beauty. And for, for her, in chapter 2, verse 3, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Provides protection and shade for her. But then we, when we get to chapter 3, Verse 6, we start to see that maybe there's more coming, there's more going on here than just the story of a man and a woman. Maybe this story of Yahweh with his people is in mind here as well. Let's look at this. What is that coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke. I think columns of smoke and wilderness. What story comes to mind? The Exodus story. In fact, when we get to the very center of, uh, the, of the story, in Song of Solomon 5, verse 1, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with milk. And her friends echo, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is the high point of the song. It's the center of the song. It's a poetic description, drinking milk with wine, eating honey. It's a poetic description of them intimate. Yeah, they're in intimacy. And how is it described? It's described as being in a garden with milk and wine. And milk, I'm sorry, milk and honey. (laughs) Milk, honey, garden. What should come to mind? The promised land and the Garden of Eden, right? I I think that what's being said here, certainly what's being said is some literal things about marriage, but, and the literal things about marriage that are being said is that when a man and a woman come together in this kind of intimacy, it undoes the curse. It reinstitutes the intimacy that was felt in the Garden of Eden. And God's unique place for this to be celebrated and experienced and enjoyed is marriage. But more than that, it points us to the God who brings his people out of the wilderness and who brings them into the land flowing with milk and honey, who allures them and brings them to himself so that God and his people can enjoy one another again. But even in this ideal marriage that we see, there's problems. Look at the very next section, right? The high point of the letter just happened. The high point of the poem, the song, just happened. And then she she tells this story. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. We We all know what's going on here, right? He's... He's trying to seduce her, right? Open to me. My head is wet with dew, my locks with drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how can I put it on? She's making excuses. I bathed my feet, how could I soil them? 
My beloved put his hand in the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose and opened to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on my hands of the bolt, on the hands of the bolt. He's using the door imagery again, right? I mean, the Bible's explicit. <laughs> he puts his hand in the lock to further seduce her. And all of a sudden she says, yes, let's do it. But then he's gone, starting in verse 6. He's gone, starting in verse 6, and she seeks him. Maybe he's emotionally detached. She goes on a search for him and finally finds him again. Even within this perfect picture of marriage, there's problems. Because the closest we can get is still not good enough. The intimacy that we desire, even though it's felt within marriage, is not fully experienced. But then look at Song of Solomon 8. Starting in verse 5. I think the, the picture here, the picture here is no longer of young love as it has been throughout the book. It's no longer a picture of intimacy through sex. It's now a picture of what that intimacy ultimately leads to, which is a bride leaning on her beloved. The point is emotional intimacy. Look at this. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? So we see the wilderness once again. What's, where's the wilderness in Israel's history? It's the place of testing, right? Was the wilderness an easy place for God in Israel or a hard place? Oh, a very hard place. It was the place where he wooed her. But when he did woo her, it, it wasn't a place of not suffering. <laughs> So what the picture here is not a picture of a young couple with no baggage, a young couple with no difficulties. It's the picture of an old couple who have really seen the worst of life and the worst of love, and she's still leaning on him. It presents a compelling picture of what a marriage that despite difficulties, what it looks like, what it can look like. She says, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. We saw the apple tree already in chapter 2 when she finds rest in the shade and enjoys the taste of the fruit. I think she's reminding him of their wedding night. There your mother was in labor with you, and there she who bore you was in labor. It's, love is a multi-generational experience is what she's drawing attention to. Their, their parents know what it's like to be under the apple tree, and they also know what it's like to be under the apple tree. And she says to him, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. She, um, they're already married, right? He's already done this. He's already said, you're my one, my exclusive, my only. And she says, say it again. Tell me again that I'm the only one you have eyes for. For love is strong as death, and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So we're already talking about wilderness, now we're talking about flame, more Exodus imagery. 
then many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. It's a picture of this flame underneath a rushing river of water. And the flame doesn't go out. Remember, this is the place of the wilderness, the place of testing. Many difficulties cannot quench love. Many flood waters cannot destroy love. Why? Because love is bigger than any couple. Love is not something that comes and goes. Love is constant. Love stays because God is love. It's the very flame of the Lord. Love can never be extinguished, though our experience of it can come and go. So if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. He would be foolish. So there's, there's pictures here of what intimacy can look like, or the best we can get this side of Eden. And it's set within the backdrop of Israel's story where God wooed her in the wilderness. And they entered into covenant together. And it's a love ultimately which points beyond itself to the faithfulness of God. The covenant faithfulness of God to his people. Who sets his people as a seal upon his heart and a seal upon his arm. And whose love can never be drowned no matter what difficulties come into the relationship between us and God. A love which is ultimately expressed in Christ and in the gospel. Ephesians 5 makes this most clear, right? Ephesians 5.22. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But even when Paul talks about husbands loving their wives, he does so with what story in mind? The Adam and Eve story, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and two shall become one flesh. He interprets the Adam and Eve story typologically. And he says that the Adam and Eve story is a picture of Christ and the church. So now when we think back on the Adam and Eve story, and God formed the woman and brought her to the man. We start to see what God does with his church to get the bride for his husband. We start to see that this love that's talked about in Song of Solomon is ultimately fulfilled in Christ and his faithful covenant love for the church. The greatest expression of marital love. And it shows to us that Jesus isn't looking for a perfect bride also, right? He's looking for a bride that he can wash and make new, similar to the woman in John 4 at the well. Consider also 1 Corinthians 6, 16 through 17. Do you, let's start in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. As is it written, the two shall become one flesh. The act of infidelity is an act of becoming one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So Paul looks at that one flesh union in the garden and says that's, and in marriage, and says that's what the union in, with Christ is like, right? He says you can't be united to Christ and a prostitute at the same time. So when Paul thinks about sexual ethics, relationship ethics, he thinks about how Christ and the church relate to one another. 
And look at Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Looking forward to the end of time, there seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls thundering, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and bright. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. This union we experience with Christ now, as compared to a husband and a wife, will be fully realized when we experience naked and unashamed communion with our Lord. We have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. We can simply look at Him and know He understands us and know that He loves us. Knows that he, know that he knows where we've been and who we've been. And we're unashamed. And the story of the unfaithful wife becomes the story of the spotless bride, right? The story of the unfaithful wife in Hosea becomes the story of the spotless bride as Christ makes the bride spotless. Look at Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. The Spirit is calling people to join the church. The bride, the church, is calling people to join the church. The one who hears says, come. And to the one who is thirsty, come. The one who desires, take water of life without price. In a, in a culture, in a society that desires deeply to be understood at a personal and intimate level, there's no greater reality than the fact the bride comes and says, become a part of us. Come and be known. Come and be understood. Come and be loved. That's what people want. That's what people desire. And that's going to be the reality of us for all of eternity. As Christ, our husband, the husband of the church, endlessly loves us. Questions on that? Yep. Mm-hmm. That the man had an occupation? Oh, he had a job before he got married? I mean... Yeah, I think, I mean, we can say that he was commissioned by God to do work before he was married. I don't know if that means that that's our prerequisite. Um, however, for him to be joined to her and for them to leave their parents' houses, um, to that responsibly would be uh, in a way that he can provide for her and take care of her. I hope not. I didn't have a job when I married my wife. We got married in Colorado, and then we moved to Louisville, and I looked for a job, so... I found one, but um, I, think, I think it just simply means that the man is able to provide for and care 
for the wife. If she's leaving her father's house and joining herself to him, he needs to be able to function in those kinds of roles. Yeah. 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 15 shekels? It's the same price for Joseph, right? Yeah, Joseph was sold to the Midianites for 15 shekels. Huh, yeah, you weren't, bo- you weren't purchased with things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Yeah, that's great. Hmm. That's good. Yeah. Like, like Gomer, we were in the slave market, and we were purchased with something far more precious than what she was purchased with. That's beautiful. I love that. Well done. That's good biblical theology, my friend. Good. If there are any questions, we can keep on moving on. I don't know if there'd be questions, especially about like Song of Solomon, which there don't have to be if you don't want there to be. We can keep going, like how that relates to Christ and stuff. Do you think we could use that as a movie for like Jews? Is this just, this is the very practice. Yeah. So the here's the here's the interesting thing about Song of Solomon. Um. I think Song of Solomon has things to say to single people also. Uh, so, interestingly enough, always, consistently, right at like the high points of the song, so the first one, in Song of Solomon 3, Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. Right, so she's bringing him into her house to have sex with him. That's what, it, that's what it says. Okay. So right at that point, verse 5, this happens throughout the book. I adjoin you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the doves of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So it has two messages. It has messages to the married of what intimacy and fellowship can look like in marriage. But to the single, it always gets right to the point where they're either about to be intimate or they are being intimate. And then it says, it, it says, wait. Disclaimer, yeah. Wait. I don't know, at least in, in my culture, I'm assuming in your culture also. I grew up in a very different culture than you. I'm assuming, I don't know if you guys' culture. The way sex is talked about is that um, don't have sex before marriage because it's bad. Don't do it, it's bad. I think the Song of Solomon has the exact opposite approach. Don't have sex before marriage because it's really good. <laughs> so wait. Please wait. You don't want to ruin it. You really don't want to. I think that's what it's saying here. So don't awaken love until it's time. Don't. Just wait till you're married. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. So wait. Please. So can single people read it? Yeah. I think so. Um, it's part of God's holy inspired word. It, uh, it's intended to evoke certain emotions in you, though. Um, that can only find their proper fulfillment in marriage. So guard your heart 
and let it compel you to fidelity and faithfulness? Would I do my regular Bible reading out of Song of Solomon if I was single? Probably not. Probably not. Um, but it, it would be odd if God never addressed this in the Bible, right? Because our sexuality is such a big part of who we are that if God never talked about it <laughs> what, <laughs> for the entire Bible, never addressed us, never helped us think through this, uh, that, that, would, that would certainly be more odd. Um, than the way this book might initially strike us. Now, Jews were not allowed to read this book till they were 30 years old. 30? Jewish men, yeah. You had to be 30 to read the Song of Solomon. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I can't think of a time, no. Uh, no, he, he actually, actually, I think in Luke, on his way to the crucifixion, there are women who are weeping for him, and he calls them the daughters of Jerusalem, which is probably a reference to Song of Solomon. I haven't thought through what that connection means. It could be that they're, because the daughters of Jerusalem are the friends of the bride, but they're not the actual bride, right? So it could be that he's talking about how he's going to, in a sense, his marriage, and uh, they're, they're weeping instead of rejoicing. They're not like the friends of the bride in Song of Solomon. It could be that. My default would be to read it like that, but I haven't spent as much time thinking about that connection. I think Jesus is definitely quoting Song of Solomon, though, when he calls them the daughters of Jerusalem. <clears throat> but I, my, my r- typological reading of Song of Solomon, uh, I think it's legitimate because I think Song of Solomon prompts us within itself towards an allegorical reading. Solomon intended the book to be read allegorically as a story of Israel and the church. I'm sorry, Israel and uh, God. And so typologically, it becomes a story of Christ and the church, I think. Good. If there's no more questions, we can keep on going. I want us to look at... Let's see. Two more. Two more of these stories before we get into our specific theme, before we dive deeply into covenant. The first is the story, oh, I'll say this, marriage, marriage and relationships. How does this help you? Um, How does this help you do biblical counseling? How does this help you, even if you're speaking at a wedding, a biblical theology of marriage, how might it help? Yeah, um, we, we will never love perfectly like Christ loves. But the, the glories of that text is that we are the bride whom he loves dearly, although we don't love our wives well. <laughs> it's like kind of the irony of that text. He loves us in spite of our weaknesses and our inability to love our wives as we should. Yeah. It helps us see how God what? God sees relationships. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and ultimately, it shows us, I mean, the story of God chasing his unfaithful wife is quite a compelling story of the lengths to which love will go, isn't it? 
And it points us ultimately not to our own ability to love well, but it points us to the one who loves perfectly in our place, right? And it shows us that marriage and love is far bigger than ourselves. It's a divine reality because God is love. And by his mercy and grace, we've tapped into, or he has bestowed upon us that divine attribute of love, and we experience it in our relationships. How amazing is that? So, you have a, let, let me say it like this, okay? So, in your culture for weddings, do pastors get up and say things at weddings or no? They do? How long do they go? 45 minutes? Wow. Maximum. Sometimes an hour. In my culture, usually it's like 10 minutes, maybe, you know. People want to get on with the party. They want to get on with the celebration. But let's say, um, okay, you're at a wedding. A pastor is supposed to be there. He's supposed to say something at the wedding. And my friends, the pastor is not there. No one knows why. No one knows why he's not. Maybe he got the date wrong. Maybe he's stuck in traffic. He's not there. And someone looks to you and says, Brian, you're the only ordained minister here. You have to get up there and say something. You've got to marry these people. You have to go, you've got to marry them. James, you've got to marry these people. You've got to go say something. By the way, the, mar- the wedding starts in five minutes. You have five minutes right now. I'll time you. What will you say? Go in and write down. I'll give you five minutes, and I'd love to hear from you guys. What would you say at the wedding based on what we just covered there? Okay, your time is up. The wedding is starting. They have asked you to come up on the stage. It's go time. So what I... (laughs) Muhammad's like ready to go. So here's what I hope this assignment helps you do first, right? Well, one, I I hope it helps you see like the last minute nature of a lot of ministry. But two, I hope that it helps you see that biblical theology helps you so much in so many different areas of ministry. And hopefully biblical theology helps you figure out in five minutes what you're going to say for potentially, in your culture, 45. 